Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. We love to hear about life change in our church. So if you have a story about how Velocity has made a difference in your life, send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. I want to look at a seminal passage of scripture that's found in the book of Romans. Now, if you don't know anything about the book of Romans, it's written by a guy we refer to as the Apostle Paul. And one thing you should know about Paul is that next to Jesus, he is probably the most prominent figure in the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, 13 books in the New Testament. And and Paul was this guy who God used in a great and incredible way. He, uh, He had this divine encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, his dramatic conversion, his life was changed, and from that he becomes really the first missionary. He took the message of Jesus, he took the gospel throughout the known parts of the world at the time, and as he would take the message of Jesus into these new places, he would establish churches there. As he'd establish churches, he'd raise up leaders, and then he would go off into some new place, and as he'd be in some new place, he would write letters to the churches that he had established to encourage them and help them in their walk with God. That's why all these letters that he wrote, they ended up making it into the Bible. We call them epistles, but they're really letters that Paul wrote to churches, which I'll just say this to you. If you're new in your relationship with God, the epistles are a great place to start because they're written to Christians. They're written to new Christians to help them understand how to walk out and live this relationship that we have with Christ. Now, what's so interesting, though, is that this letter to the church in Rome, Romans, we call it, this is Paul's masterpiece. It's a letter, but it's, it's really less of a letter and more of a dissertation on the theology of Christianity. You, you can dive into it. It's, it's his crowning work. And I'm setting all this up for you because I want you to know where we're going to jump in in chapter 7. Paul, I just got done telling you all his accolades, this great preacher, teacher, author, church planter, missionary, evangelist, leader of leaders, uh, business leader, all these different things that he did. And I want you to notice what he says about himself in Romans 7. We're going to start in verse 15. He writes, I don't really understand myself. Maybe I should just stop there. (laughs) How many of you would say, Paul, I can relate. I don't really understand myself sometimes. So I'm like, well, you know, myself, I don't understand my spouse. Don't raise your hand on that one, okay? I'm just saying, I don't really understand myself. He says, I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So he's saying, I agree with God's word. This is wrong. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I want to do, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. 
I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Have you ever felt like this before? Where you want to do what's right, but you don't. Maybe you feel like you can't. And the things that you do want to do, the good things, the right things, you don't do those things. Sometimes it can feel like there's two of you. That there's this war within you. Paul talks about this war between who I am and who I'm not. And you can feel so miserable, and that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I feel miserable. It makes you feel miserable. And he says, who will free me? In other words, who can help me find freedom? That's the question that we're asking, and I want to use this text to launch into this today. The truth is, we all have things from our past that need to be settled once and for all. And what we're going to go after in this series is the freedom that God has for you. And what you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God wants you to experience freedom. Maybe just say that. God wants me to experience freedom. Let's try that together. God wants me to experience freedom. So I'm using Paul's text to introduce this to you today. And I want to speak to you from this subject. If you're taking notes and you like to write these titles down, this is called Good to Grace. Good to Grace. I'm going to ask that you pray with me. I believe it's so helpful when we humble ourselves before God, go to him in prayer. That's really what allows him to work on our hearts. So if you would bow your head, I'm going to say a general prayer over us. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come before you. Have you speak to our heart in a way that only you can. God, I'm asking that you would use me today. God, I know that it's not my ability, my strength, my wisdom, my words that makes a difference. It's the power of your Holy Spirit. It's the power of your word. And so, God, I'm asking that you'd use me, that you'd take your word, and it would be like seed sown in people's hearts today, that it would take root and it would produce fruit in their lives long after they leave here, Father. I thank you for it, and I believe it in Jesus' name, and everybody who agrees with that can say Amen. Hey, how many of you are doers and achievers by nature? Let me see your hand. You just feel better when you are accomplishing something. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, all those people are either homeless or teenagers. Because, let's face it, it takes a certain amount of drive just to make it in this life. Would you agree? I, uh, I, I'm a doer and achiever by nature. That's what motivates me. I'm Achiever, it's one of my top five strengths and strength finders. I'm a three on the Enneagram, Pastor Andrew. I don't even know what that is, but I, I, I took it so I could at least tell him that. I, I'm just saying I'm motivated by performance. I'm motivated by doing. I'm motivated by achieving. So much so that I look at most of my life through this lens of improvement. Meaning, okay, this is where I'm at. But this is where I want to be. Where I'm at is good, but this is better. If I'm at better, I want to be best. I want to move from good to great. Is anybody else like that? 
In fact, there's actually, there's actually a book that came out a number of years ago called Good to Great. It's a phenomenal business book. It's all about moving the needle. And uh, hard to believe it actually came out almost 20 years ago. I remember reading this book long before I planted the church. It's like what makes organizations great. It's about leadership and all, all this kind of stuff. And it's a great, great book. I remember leading, uh, reading it and, and uh, just because I was studying all I could about how to lead an organization that would impact the world. And if you've never read it, I could sum it up for you kind of like this. I took some of these from the book, but it says, greatness is not primarily a function of circumstance. Greatness is a matter of conscious choice and discipline. We're great by choice. The answer is not what happens to you. It's the choices, decisions, actions, and disciplines that make you, that you make, that separate the good from the great. Now, if you're like me, that kind of language works for me because I'm motivated by performance. I'm motivated by, okay, there are some things that if I tweak, there are some things that if I change them, like, I'm saying like you set a goal in front of me, I'm gonna try and hit it, right? You challenge me, I'm gonna step up to the plate. You dare me, has the potential to get really awkward for people in here. That's what I'm saying. I'm just saying like I'm motivated by achievement. I'm motivated by performance. I've never seen somebody get a medal just because they entered the race. They don't say, hey, I like your attitude. Here you go. All right. I mean, unless you're playing t-ball or something, you don't get a trophy just for showing up. And this isn't a bad thing. I mean, when it comes to accomplishing things worthwhile, it's always this process, work, then reward, is what I teach my kids. If you're a parent, you can relate to this. No video games until your homework's done. You want to play outside? You got to clean up your room first. It's always work and then reward. It's the same thing in your life. If you're a college student, you just don't show up to college your first semester and say, I'd like my diploma now. I'd like my degree. Well, that's not the way it works. Well, I was a good student in high school. I'm sure I'll be a good student here. You know, I think it motivated me. That's not the way it works. If you're an employee, if you're a business, you don't say, hey, how about my end of the year bonus, you know, right now? I mean, I've been doing pretty good. Or maybe things haven't been that good, but I'm sure I'll hit it. That's not the way. It's always work, and then you reap. And the fact that you don't get the reward until after you earn it until after you work for it, that motivates you to work that much harder. So I'm just trying to say that your efforts matter. Say that, your efforts matter. Your, your, Your efforts matter. Now, if there was anybody who knew about the importance of your efforts, if there was anybody who, in my estimation, was motivated by achievement and motivated by accomplishment, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul is what you would call an overachiever. Most of you know he, he authored a lot of books in the New Testament, but he was driven by success and driven by a... Like, his drive started long before he ever became a Christian. What you might not know is that Paul was born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He grew up in Jerusalem. Because of that, he studied under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was like the Yoda of rabbis. Gamaliel, he, he, was, he was very well-known, very, very famous, very, uh, ha- had a lot of prestige and credibility. 
And Paul actually, he writes about this. He, he went into what was the strictest sect of Pharisees. He calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means that he was at the top of his class in Pharisee school. He, Paul was driven by achievement. Now, he was so passionate and so zealous in his practice of Judaism that before he became a Christian, he actually, as Christianity was spreading, he actually persecuted Christians. You know about that. This is kind of the famous part of his story. Has a dramatic encounter with Jesus. His life has changed. What you might not know is that before Paul ever started preaching, he went in the desert for three years where he alludes to the fact that he was taught scripture by Jesus himself. I mean, I don't know that it gets too much higher than that. Not only that, I told you he was really the first missionary, went into the known world, spread the gospel, planted churches. He raised up leaders to care for these churches, raised up other leaders to oversee this growing ministry and organization. He funded all of this through his own business venture and entrepreneurial skills. I'm just trying to get across to you the point that Paul knew something about working hard to hit your goals. Paul knew something about making it happen. Paul knew something about discipline. That's why his letter to the Romans is so interesting to me. Because for all of his accomplishments, for all of his accolades, for all of his drive and all of his skills, when it comes to freedom, he says something different. He's like, with everything I've been able to do, everything I've been able to achieve, everything I've been able to accomplish, everything I've been able to make happen, I can't figure this one out. I don't understand myself. I do things that I don't want to do, and I don't do things that I want to do. I've tried, and I've failed. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes for all of my drive, all of my ability to perform and motivation to perform, for all of my drive, I can feel a lot like Paul. Like, I can win here, and I can win here, and I can win here, and I can do that thing, but I can't seem to beat this. And so many times when we're looking for freedom, the advice that we get from people, pastors included, is this, try harder. Try harder. This is our solution to everything. Hey, you don't like what you're doing? Do this. You don't like the results you're getting? Fix it with this. And I already told you, effort is not a bad thing. In fact, I want to tell you that your efforts do matter. Your efforts matter. You look at the life of Jesus. You look in the Gospels. You never see Jesus heal anybody without their participation, without getting them involved. You can look at, I challenge you. Look at every time Jesus healed somebody. They got involved in the process. Like there was a man with a withered hand. Jesus said to him, stretch forth your hand. He had to stretch. He had to do something that was vulnerable. He had to expose what he didn't want anybody else to see. He had to to participate in that miracle before he was healed. 
You think about the, the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. They said, Jesus, we need you to do something about it. He said, hey, what do you have? He said, you give them something to eat. Before the people could even partake of the food, he made the disciples sit them down in groups of 50s and 100s. There was the woman with the issue of blood. She said, hey, if I can just, you know, touch the hem of his garment. What is she? she had to press through the crowds to get to him. I'm just saying, in every time Jesus healed somebody, they had to participate in their miracle. So your efforts matter. I, I don't want to make light of that. Sometimes our problem is in, in church is we don't try at all. Our marriage is struggling. We're not going to see a counselor. We're, we're not going to talk to anybody about it. We're not going to get help. We're just going to struggle through it. We have an addiction. I don't care whether it's pornography, drugs, alcohol. You got an addiction in your life, but you never take any measure of accountability. You never put any guardrails around to help, help you deal and wrestle through that. You're struggling financially, but you refuse to budget. I'm, no way I'm getting a second job. I'm, I, no way I, I can't do that. I'm just saying, sometimes our problem is we don't put forth any effort. Your efforts matter. But I want you to hear me on this. If all you do is try harder, you will always come up short. Because when people tell you to try harder, what we're basically doing is telling you to be your own functioning savior. So this is what it looks like. We're trying to get free. And somebody says, well, you know what you need to do? You you need to read your Bible more. You know what you need to do? You need to pray more. You know what you need to do is is you need to fast. You know, some some things only come out by prayer and fasting. That's what you need to do. You know what you need to do? You, You need to eliminate the situations that would cause you to be vulnerable. You, you know what you need to do? You need, you need to get the right people in your life. And let me tell you, all those things are true. And all those things are helpful. But here's what you need to grasp this morning, is that your efforts only help you. They can never heal you. Your, your, your efforts, they'll help you, but they will never heal you. Even on our best days, our efforts can never heal us. So if you're here and you're looking for freedom in an area of your life this morning, let me tell you what you're not going to get from me today. I'm not going to tell you to pray harder. I'm not going to tell you to read your Bible more. I'm not going to tell you to fast longer. I'm not going to tell you to come to church more. Because none of those things are the source of our freedom. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I do know that you're dealing with something. It could be lust. It could be insecurity. It could be an addiction. It could be pornography. It could be you speak in tongues, but you can't control your tongue, meaning that meaning that shows up with anger or lying or gossip 
or slandered. Maybe, maybe it's not any of those things. Maybe your problem is pride. You don't think you have any issues, and that's your problem. Maybe it's nothing that's so obvious, but it's insecurity. Every time you, you, you try and, and step out, you're, like, you're, you're so insecure about never measuring up and never being good enough. Maybe it's authority issues. I don't know what your issue is, but I know that you're struggling with something. And the reason I can say that is because if the Apostle Paul, the guy who had it going on, the, the, the guy that did more for the kingdom of God than probably any of us ever will, if he said, I struggle with this, I struggle with something, then I know you must struggle with something too. And maybe, maybe it's obvious to everyone or maybe it's something that you hide and it's eating you alive inside because nobody knows. And we may not deal with the same thing that everybody else deals with, but we all have our own struggles. But I noticed something different about Paul's struggle than my struggle. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but as I was meditating on this, this hit me. Because Paul seemed to separate himself from the struggle. Did you see that? Did, did you notice that? He's like, hey, I know I do this, but it's not really me that's doing it. It's the sin living in me. He, I don't know if you saw it. He says it twice. He says it in verse 17, and he says it in verse 20. I'll just point out to you. He says, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. Now, this is kind of crazy. I mean, this, this sounds like he's not taking responsibility for his actions. Like, Paul, you are in denial right now. Like, like this is like, you know, the friend that you have who thinks that she's a size 2, but really she's a size 10. And, you know, you're like, you better make sure there's some elastic in the waistband. Because, you know, it's like, you can think all you want, but we know the truth. Like, we can see it. It's obvious to everybody. It's like when you go... And you talk to anybody who's ever been in prison or jail, it's like nobody in prison is ever guilty. Everybody's innocent. Everybody is the victim of their circumstance. It's like, Paul, you got to get your act together here. Like, it's clear. This is you. You did this. You're admitting that you did this. What's wrong with you? And saying, now, I want you to understand, I'm not really the one doing wrong. So, so what's going on here? Is he not, like, admitting his guilt? Does he have like some kind of complex? Does he have some kind of problem owning up to responsibility? That, that's not what he's doing at all. Here's what you need to see. Paul has learned a secret that you and I need to learn this morning. And this is a secret. He's learned that his activity is not his identity. You see, when I read this, what I read about is a man that has actually learned his identity. He understands his identity. He's saying, look, that thing, that, that thing that I did, that's not me. Now, the, the, the real me has been made new in Jesus Christ. Now, the, the real me loves Jesus. There's a thing that I did, and then there's a person who I am, and the two are not the same. He's saying, that's not me. That's not who I am. It's the exact opposite of what we tell ourselves. It's the exact opposite of what I tell myself. Man, when, when, when I do something wrong, 
maybe when you do something wrong, it sounds like this, man, you're such a screw up. Man, what is wrong with you? You always do this. Man, this marriage would be better without you. This team would be better without you. Your kids would be better without you. This church would be better without you. You'll never change. You'll always be this way. You're unstable. You're a pervert. You've got a problem. This is who you are. But Paul says, that's not me. That, 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 that's not me. And I'm glad he does that. Because it helps me understand that his issue here is not a sin issue. It's an identity issue. See, no amount of human effort can change your identity. That's why Paul says this. He says, who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? In other words, you can't free yourself. You can't work your way out of this. That's why you need a savior. No matter how hard you try, you will always and never be able to rid yourself on your own. See, this is what's so different about Christianity and a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus. Because when you come to God and you're talking to him about the struggles and you're talking to him about this issue, he never comes to you and responds by saying do. He responds with a who. He says, what you need isn't to do something. What you need is to know someone. It's, it's really this, that freedom never happens through a program. It happens through a person. And that person is Jesus. And this is, this is how I want to put it to you. This is what I'd like you to write down. It's that freedom doesn't come from the absence of sin. Freedom comes from the presence of a Savior. This is what makes Christianity different than anything else. This is what makes the Bible different than any other book. It's different than religion. It's different than moralism. Because see, here's what moralism will tell you. Moralism will tell you there are bad things in your life, and if you work hard to get the bad things out of your life, well, then you can be free. But the Bible says freedom doesn't come from getting something out of your life. Freedom comes from inviting someone into your life. See, that's the difference. That's the difference. And this is what Paul was talking about. because He's saying, look, I'm miserable. I've tried. I can't control my behaviors. I've tried every kind of behavior modification. I, I know I'm, I've hit goals and I've done it, but I can't win with this. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? In other words, I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to free me. I can't do it by myself and no other human can. And this is what he says in the very next verse. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who's going to free you? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ. See, you can try to work it out on your own, but you will never get there because your efforts are not good enough. 
Your efforts aren't good enough. Have you ever noticed like when someone's efforts are no longer good enough, like maybe they used to be? Like maybe you used to be, like you're driven, you could make things happen, you were, you know, overachiever, give yourself a pat on the back, that's awesome. But then you meet Jesus and he says, your efforts are no longer good enough. I was thinking about the fact that when our efforts are no longer good enough, we often call that person a has-been. A has-been. Nobody wants to be a has-been. Has-been means you're washed up. Has-been means that you no longer have influence. Has-been means you should stop trying. But can I tell you, when it comes to your freedom, you're a has-been. You're a has-been. You know why? Because your, per- your freedom has been purchased by Jesus Christ. He says, it's already happened. The cross says there is freedom for you. This is what scripture says. It says that he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. In other words, it's done. The, The freedom that you desire, that you think you can't have, has already been purchased by Jesus Christ. He paid for it, and he wants you to experience it. Can I tell you, he wouldn't put it on the menu if he didn't want you to have it. The fact that it's there, he wants you to experience it. That would be, man, that would be like like psychotic, sociopathic, to say, hey, here's this thing that I bought for you, and I'm going to tell you about it, but you can never experience it? That's not the God I serve. He's, he's purchased it and he's made it available to you. And he wants you to have it. So there's hope. See, this is why you experience conviction when you sin. Because God is always drawing us to his righteousness. Now, you need to know that conviction is not the same thing as condemnation. And maybe you're like me, because see, I used to have this confused for the longest time. I, I always thought that, you know, when I sin, that conviction, I, I thought that I, when I felt shame for what I did, I thought that was conviction. But that's not conviction. That, that's condemnation. Condemnation always keeps you away from God. Yeah. Condemnation always puts shame on you. Condemnation says, man, you don't belong here. Look at what you did. Condemnation is always pointing out your sin and causing you to feel shame. And God never works with condemnation. It never comes from God. See, God doesn't convict you by showing you your shame. The way conviction works, the way the Holy Spirit works in our life, is God convicts a believer by reminding you of your righteousness. You see, when conviction is working, operating by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's actually keeping you from sinning. Saying, man, you don't, don't do that. Like, you're the righteousness of God. And when you do sin, He's not putting shame on you. He's pointing you back 
to what Jesus has already done. He's pointing you back to the cross. He's pointing you back to how Jesus has purchased it. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. When, when, when he reminds you of your righteousness, you know what he's going to remind you of? It's not going to be your works. It's not going to be your efforts. It's not going to be what you've done. It's going to be what Jesus has done. It's going to be what Jesus did on the cross, how he was crucified, died, and was buried, and conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave, and got back up. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to point you to. And it's almost like, see, God has selective memory when it comes to you. I know this because, like, I've always known my wife is more Christ-like than I am, but I really saw it, like, when we travel. Because what you got to know is, like, like my wife, uh, she, I love all the things she does in her church. I, I love how she leads, and she has a lot that she does. But her first primary responsibility, calling, and gift is with our children. And so anytime we're away, whether it's with work or whether it's, we, you know, we celebrate her anniversary... She's always missing our kids. And that's because she has a selective memory. <laughs> because, because, see, I know our kids. I'm, bar- like, I'm barely convinced that our kids are saved half the time. Because, so, so here's what I did. Because I wanted to enjoy like, our anniversary trip. I, I didn't want us you know, like, to be there. She's like, all sad about our kids. So I started recording our kids every time they had a meltdown. And you might think that this is bad parenting, and you might be right, but this is what I did. And so, so when we were on our trip, she's like, oh, I miss the, the, the kids. And I said, you mean you miss this? You mean you miss our little two-year-old daughter telling you to shut up and hitting you? You miss this crying? She has a selective memory. But you know, God has a selective memory. He doesn't remember your sin. Think about that. The worst thing you've done. And he's selective in the fact that he chooses to not remember. He chooses to forget. He chooses to look at what Jesus did, who was perfect and pure and faithful. And he says, that's the lens at which I'm looking through, looking at your life. That's why the last thing I want to tell you is this. Let the Holy Spirit move you from guilt to grace. I I thought a lot about how I wanted to communicate this truth to you. But for once, I wanted you to put the responsibility on God. This isn't something for you to do. This is something for you to let God do for you. And wouldn't it be different if you decided to live like that this week instead of how you lived last week? We're always trying, it's feeling like you're not good enough, it's working, falling short. It's a contrast from the way most of us live our lives. Most of us live our lives by doing, trying, and failing. Let me share this last verse with you. Paul wrote this. He said, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, 
there's freedom. The second part of the next verse says, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So let me ask you, who makes you more like Christ? Is it you? Is it because you read your Bible so much? Is it because you came to church and you never missed a Sunday? Is it because you pray for two hours in the morning? Who is it that makes you more like Christ? It's God's job. He's going to help you. It's his responsibility. And I wonder what would happen if you just approached your relationship instead of trying, what if you just started trusting? Trusting that he has changed you from the inside out. Trusting that each day you walk with him, you're becoming more like him. Trusting that your life is in his capable hands. It's a contrast from the way most of us live our Christian life. And speaking of contrast, you know, there's another contrast that Paul wrote about in Romans. He actually wrote about it right before that passage that I read to you in Romans chapter 6. It's a really famous scripture. But I want to end with this. Romans 6, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every time I've read this verse, I've always seen it as two opposites, contrasting death and life. Like if you follow God, you get life. If you don't follow God, if you follow sin, you get death. And those words are in there. They are definitely opposites. They are definitely being contrasted. But as I was preparing for this message, This verse came to my mind, and I was thinking about it really in context of what God would want to say to you. Because there's another contrast in this verse. I don't know if you saw it, it's so important. Two words that you wouldn't normally think are contrasted, but I want you to see this. The words are wages and gift. See, within this verse are the two approaches people take with living the Christian life. It's, are you living for Jesus, trying to earn wages? Are you living in Jesus, having received the gift? Are you working for wages, or have you received the gift? Are you... Waking up each day, starting at zero, I got to work harder, I got to do more, I got to try better. Are you waking up having arrived? Jesus loves me. He already approves of me. And so many people, even though God has set them free, they still drag the shackles of their past into their present situation. And so I want to end with a prayer. I want to say a prayer for each person here because I believe that God has given you a principle today that can change your life. To recognize that freedom doesn't come from what you can do. 
You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't make it happen. You have to allow God to make you more like him, to recognize that you've been changed. See, salvation is different than sanctification. Salvation happens in a moment. Forgiveness happens in a moment. And your freedom is purchased. It's done. But it's experienced over time. It's experienced day by day. And each day, you get a little more free. And each day, you understand it a little more. And each day, Jesus is making you more like him.